As a good Bible student, you've heard that the New Testament was originally written in Greek. Now, if only somebody could help you learn a few basics, right? Well, you're just minutes away from an introduction to biblical Greek, and then we'll answer your questions about Israel, prophecy, and the Middle East. Plus, you'll find comfort amidst conflict in Charlie Dyer's devotional, all ahead on The Land and the Book. Hey, welcome again to our one-hour visit to the Holy Land. The Land and the Book is hosted by Israel expert Dr. Charlie Dyer, and I'm John Geiger, always glad to come alongside. Boy, Charlie, for somebody who's new, what's this opening segment that we're about to dive into all about? Oh, it's distilling everything that's been happening in the Middle East into one brief moment where people can understand not only what's been taking place, but why and what is it the news isn't fully reporting. Okay, let's dig into our uh, list of stories. It's been a week since the ceasefire took effect between Israel and Hamas. Both sides have claimed victory in the conflict, but were there clear winners and losers in the fighting? Yeah, there were no ultimate winners. Uh, The losers were the civilians in Gaza and the civilians living along Israel's border with Gaza. They lost homes, possessions, and loved ones. Hamas is claiming victory in the fighting, but it's not a victory in the sense of actually defeating Israel or capturing territory. Hamas is claiming victory by using a different yardstick. They brought the peace process between Israel and the surrounding Arab countries to a halt. We don't know if that halt's just temporary or permanent, but the Gulf states went from embracing Israel to condemning Israel over the battle. Hamas also positioned themselves, rather than the Palestinian Authority, as the champion of the Palestinians. Hmm. If elections were held right now, John, Hamas would likely sweep the current Palestinian leadership right out of power. And Hamas apparently won the propaganda war. Using threats and intimidation, Hamas made sure the news coming out of Gaza focused on Israeli attacks rather than the war crimes they were committing. The consistent news media narrative pictured Hamas as victims rather than aggressors. Now, militarily, Israel won the conflict. The Iron Dome was effective in shooting down most rockets heading towards civilian population centers, and Israel's precision bombs destroyed much of Hamas's underground tunnel system, which they'd spent years and huge amounts of money developing. Though they won't admit it publicly, Hamas was surprised by the ferocity and accuracy of those Israeli strikes. It will take years for them to rebuild what was lost. In spite of the pressure they received from the West, including the U.S., Israel continued pressing the attack until most of their goals had been reached. To achieve total victory, they would have had to launch a ground attack on Gaza, and that would have resulted in far more casualties on both sides. So, given the limitations and restrictions they faced, Israel accomplished as many of their goals as they could realistically expect to achieve. Now, that's not to say everyone in Israel is happy. Political pundits and rivals to Prime Minister Netanyahu, who were silent during the fighting, have now come out criticizing the way the war was fought. Some have even suggested Netanyahu caused the war, Hmm. as if to suggest he could somehow control Hamas. Others have suggested he prolonged the fighting to stay in power, though Benny Gantz, one of his fiercest rivals, was Minister of Defense and was following closely the recommendations of the military in giving them enough time to attack Hamas's tunnel system. So on balance, I'd say Israel won the war on the ground, but hasn't done as well in the war over public perception waged by Hamas, the media, and government critics. Well, Charlie, what could Israel have done, though, to uh, better sway public opinion? It seems like the deck is stacked. 
uh, the deck is stacked, uh, and it's amazing how much of the media reported on uh, civilian damage. In fact, it was, uh, I think, Winston Churchill who said uh, that uh, a lie goes halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get its pants on. Well, that was true. Um, you, you read articles like uh, the UK Guardian said, Israel airstrike on Gaza claims eight young cousins. Well, it comes out a few days later that that family was killed by a rocket that was fired by Hamas. Uh, but the rebuttal didn't make the news. It was that initial report that caused such damage uh, in PR terms to Israel. And uh, frankly, Israel just has no way to defeat that. Yeah. Well, the military battle with Hamas might be over, but the political battle in Israel is still being fought. What's the latest on Yair Lapid's efforts to form an anti-Netanyahu unity government? Yeah, as I mentioned, a host of Netanyahu's rivals, including Lapid, have now come out attacking Netanyahu's leadership of everything from the war against Hamas to the war against the coronavirus. To hear these rivals tell it, both wars were dismal failures on Israel's part. Even though Israeli innovation and technology and leadership brought about tremendous success in both, Lapid is still trying to cobble together his anti-Netanyahu coalition, but the numbers so far aren't working in his favor. He has until this coming Wednesday to form that coalition, and at that point his mandate will expire. Now, assuming he's not able to form a coalition, then Israel heads into uncharted territory. The president can turn the selection of the next prime minister over to the entire Knesset and give them three weeks to see if any Knesset member can pull together enough votes to become prime minister. And if that doesn't work, well, then Israel heads to its fifth election in two and a half years. The problem right now is that neither the anti-Netanyahu coalition led by Lapid nor the pro-Netanyahu coalition has enough votes for a majority. There are enough conservatives in the Knesset to form that majority, but Two of the conservative parties, Gideon Sa'ar's New Hope Party and Avigdor Lieberman's Yisrael Batenu Party, have said they will not join a Netanyahu-led government. And Naftali Bennett's plans remain unclear. Will he join one of the two factions, or is he angling to become prime minister by pulling together a coalition in the Knesset? Anyway, all of that to say, over the next week or so, watch to see what Naftali Bennett and Gideon Sa'ar do. If they were to somehow join with Netanyahu, he could still be prime minister. Hmm. If they're willing to join with the Islamist Ra'am party and side with Yair Lapid, well, then he could become prime minister. Now, there are a lot of egos involved in these political battles, <laughs> and that complicates the whole situation. For sure. You're listening to The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, working our way through a list of current event stories you've seen online and on television. Israel's Iron Dome defensive system once again demonstrated its effectiveness in the recent fighting successfully destroying 90% of the rockets it attempted to intercept. But the war also saw the use of a new system, the Iron Beam. So what does the Iron Beam do, Charlie, and how effective was it? Well, the Iron Beam is a directed energy weapon. Now think of it as a high-powered laser beam that can intercept and destroy short-range rockets, artillery shells, mortars, drones, and even incendiary balloons. The system consists of a radar and a tracking system, the power supply, and a radio signal jammer, as well as the laser. It can be mounted on an SUV, and it has an effective range of about four miles. It can be used standalone or as part of the larger air defense system of Israel. Now, the two main benefits of the system are its lower operational cost and its ability to fire virtually an unlimited number of shots. The system was developed to handle two major threats the incendiary balloons that Hamas began launching a little over a year ago, 
and the observation and attack drones that Iran has developed and sent to its allies. Uh, these drones come in sizes as small as the little quadcopters that can be used for aerial observation to much larger drones that can carry bombs. In an initial test last year, the system intercepted and destroyed 150 explosive balloons in a 10-day period. Hmm. Now, much of the information on the system is still not publicly available, but apparently the system was shown to be effective in stopping these newest weapons in Hamas's arsenal. Hopefully, it'll be fully implemented along Israel's borders to help protect the country and the people from these ever-evolving threats. Well, an Israeli startup hopes to ease the burden of those who have lost a loved one by developing what they're calling a GPS for grief. Tell us about this new smartphone app from Amazing Israel. Yeah, the app takes someone who's grieving uh, the loss of a loved one through the complex process of handling all the details, including the grieving process itself. The Israeli firm that developed the app is called Empathy. Uh, the stated purpose for the app is to help guide and support an individual who's lost that loved one. Now, while the app does provide access to care specialists and help connecting someone with local professionals, it does much more than take someone through the grief process, as important as that is. Uh, they also can help someone who's grieving through the process of applying for and collecting benefits. They can help locate and store important papers, help an individual through all the complexities of bills and collecting on insurance policies and probating a will. The app also provides audio chapters to help walk someone through the process of grieving. Uh, the app itself can be purchased for a one-time charge of $65, but that provides full access to all the features and content and services. Now, John, my mom passed away four months ago. I'm responsible for handling all her affairs. I just wish I'd known about this application when I first started working through that process. Now, if someone listening is interested in exploring this new app from Amazing Israel, go to www.empathy.com. The company offers a 30-day free trial, so check it out. And that's a look at today's current event stories here on The Land and the Book. Later on, Charlie, speaking of grief, your devotional, what's it about? Uh, we're going to be heading to Psalm 102 to talk about comfort amidst conflict. And there's lots more to come on today's edition of The Land and the Book, including a look at Bible questions that have come in from listeners like you. And up next, an introduction to biblical Greek here on The Land and the Book. As a good Bible student, you've heard that the New Testament was originally written in Greek. So how do you think your study of the Bible would be different if you understood a few basic Greek language concepts, or more even? Well, you'll answer that question for yourself in just a bit. We're about to bring you an introduction to biblical Greek. You're going to love it. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. And before we head into the classroom, Let's get creative with sharing Messiah with the Jewish people that God has placed right in our path. So God has opened the door for you to build a friendship with a, a Jewish friend. And you're wondering, are there specific ways that you could pray for that Jewish friend in their spiritual journey to understanding who Messiah is? Let's ask Eva Rydelnik. She's an adjunct faculty member at the Moody Bible Institute. What do you say? Specific yeah. ways? In Romans, it says that my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And I, first of all, I think we can just begin with that very, very important prayer that they would come to know who Messiah is, that their heart would be open and that they would be willing to hear the good news that the Messiah of Israel has come and that he loves them 
and wants to have a personal relationship with them. Any other specific ways to pray? I mean, I, I think also pray for open doors. It talks about in, this, in the New Testament about praying for open doors of opportunity, that we would be alert to those open doors and say, okay, they're having an issue in their life right now with their teenage kids. Mm. Help me, God, to show how you can help solve that problem for them. I think of uh, Ron Hutchcraft who talks about the three open prayer. Lord, open a door. Lord, open a heart. Lord, open my mouth. Yes, I love Ron. That's such a great parallel. Open the door. Open their heart. Open my mouth. Excellent. Excellent. Ways to pray for your Jewish friend. Thoughts there from Eva Rydelnik here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, Thank you, John. Dr. John Schwant was appointed the first president of Redemption Seminary in 2018. Prior to this role, he served as the executive director of mobile education for Faith Life. If you use Logos software or any of its family of products, you're familiar with Faith Life. Before that, he was one of the original professors at New St. Andrews College, where he taught Greek and New Testament for 17 years. He has decades of experiencing teaching online and developing distance education curricula. It's a pleasure to welcome you to The Land and the Book. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. And one thing we didn't mention in that biography is the fact that you have written an introduction to biblical Greek, a grammar with exercises, and we're ready to dig in. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. I can't wait to talk about it. It's (laughs) it's not often people want to have a conversation about, well, tell me more about Greek. So this is (laughs) thank you for asking. (laughs) All right. A total beginner's question here. How is biblical Greek different from the Greek that I would hear on the streets of Athens today? I mean, if I spoke biblical Greek exclusively, could I even converse with someone uh, touring the Parthenon? Wow, that's yeah, that's actually a, a really interesting question. With and there's a lot of people that have very uh, pointed answers to that question. So if you talk to a Greek, yes. Uh, if I uh, actually I have walked around the Parthenon, <laughs> uh, spoke biblical Greek, and uh, was able to communicate. It was it's just fine. And actually, the, the Greeks around there, the modern Greeks, are honored to, uh, to hear it. Uh, it's mainly a question of pronunciation. Mm. So the academic pronunciation that are, that's taught in most seminaries today is a, basically a construction. It's a, it's a construction of a pronunciation across many different periods of time and some Anglo influences. And so it never really existed. And that is offensive to Greeks. <laughs> <laughs> because it really doesn't sound like it. So if you use that pronunciation, it's a problem. Mm-hmm. But if you use a historical pronunciation and one that maps with the current pronunciation, then you can use biblical Greek and speak to someone that just speaks modern Greek. It's not a problem. Why is it a good idea to invest time and effort in learning biblical Greek? Oh, well, you know, ironically, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, you learn an original language to translate the Bible, to decode it in some fashion. And that's really not a, re- a good reason to learn Greek. Uh, we have great translations. They do a fantastic job. And, if, uh, you know, when I went to seminary and learned Greek, and you know, I finished the courses and I was translating the exercises we were translating, and I kind of looked around and said, why did I go through all this work when I ended up with what I already had in, in my <laughs> translations? <laughs> And so it's really not to understand, uh, not to translate, but to understand what isn't translated. Mm. It's, to, it's to notice what the authors didn't say. 
So, you know, that's the realm of implied meaning or avoided meaning or the pacing or volume, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. the style, the wordplay, the illusions an author might have. It's really the, the fun part of language. And really, my favorite part of the language is being surprised by an author. Yeah. So, you know, coming to a passage and wondering, why did he say it like that? And, you know, what's behind, you know, (laughs) that? Now, if I was just translating, uh, just converting, you know, word for word, I would never be surprised Mm -hmm. uh, because I'm just kind of, you know, like a, a computer just spitting out in a different form what's already there. But if I understand the language or even just, you know, a little bit, you get those moments of surprise. And that is, that's a glimpse into the author's intent and really what the Lord had for that inspired author at that point and what he has for us. Dr. John Schwant is president of Redemption Seminary. He's written an introduction to biblical Greek from Lexham Press. Let me ask the question that I suspect a lot of our listeners would ask. Uh, You know, you sit there in a Sunday morning service and your pastor says, now in the original Greek, Okay, and then they make their comment, and uh, sometimes it's way beyond me because most things are way beyond me. But other times I go, wow, okay, and it really is blockbuster. It really is. And it is also not only blockbuster, but different from what my Bible says. Question, why doesn't my Bible in English just say that then? Why do I have to have my pastor say in the original Greek it meant? That's a great question. Well, you know, a translator has to make choices. You know, what's their goal in translation? You can never say anything, everything in one sentence. You have to choose what your point's going to be. Mm-hmm. And so translators are no different. And so they're focused on their translation goal. Oftentimes, that's a formal equivalency or, you know, a literal formal translation to show you the structure of the Greek. And a lot of times that's not the deeper meaning that would be conveyed by a, a phrase or the overall sentence or allusions to previous uses of a word. And so uh, that's where, you know, the study helps and that's where pastors in their study, you know, are able to uh, provide that extra information for yeah. the translation. Okay. Address the skeptic who says, look, I can go online. I mean, I'm glad for you, Dr. Schwant, you wrote this book, An Introduction to Biblical Greek, but I can go online and I can access any number of tools that will give me all the Greek I need. How is that effort and the benefits that come from it different than going through the 37 lessons in this book? Oh, <laughs> that's a good, I love that question. I, uh, I got in a little trouble with my Greek friends uh, Greek scholar friends, when I produced a, a book, the reverse in a linear uh, for biblical Greek, uh, and it's an, a help, just like Bible software is. I'm a big fan of Bible software. Obviously, I worked at Logos Bible Software, and a lot of people say, "Why are you producing these crutches?" When really we should have people, you know, learn the language. Either you use translations, or you learn the, you know, go through the <laughs> the rigor and learn the languages. And I just disagree with that digital approach, you know, either on or off. I, I think it's a, a climb. I think you can be a little bit fluent. I think, yeah. well, you know, I guess, you know, I'm fluent in Spanish in a, in a number of, of words. You know, I could say please and thank you. And mm-hmm. I, around food, I'm pretty good. So in those contexts, <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty good. And by fluent, I mean, I'm not converting it to English. It just means those things in, in Spanish. 
in the same way in in Greek, you can be a, a little bit fluent just just with a few words. Like a lot of people know what agape means, and they're not translating it. And so you can use these tools and these helps without you know being forever dependent upon them. They can actually be doorways to learning more. So yeah, I'm not afraid of the helps. And you know, are they sufficient? Is that all you need? Again, I don't think so because they're not going to bring you to that point where it's unconscious. You just mm-hmm. know what it means, and that's a, a light yoke. And when you're able to stack a number of these light yoke blocks together, that's where the the magic of, of revelation starts to happen. When you're when you realize oh the aha moment of connecting a number of these things together. When you're when you're leaning on the you know a dictionary, no matter how fast it comes it's slowing down that process, that thinking, you know, coming to those conclusions. And so the goal, when you really are able to read fluently without those helps, you're going to get a lot more of those aha moments. Mm -hmm. Dr. John Schwant has written an introduction to biblical Greek, a grammar with exercises. I want you to give us an example, uh, John, of a hidden gem that uh, is uncovered once you're more familiar with biblical Greek? Maybe something, you know, very early in your own studies, in your own uh, experience with Greek that made you say, wow, wow, this is, this is something I got to pursue. What's a passage? Well, um, one of them uh, that jumps out to me was uh, when I was uh, first learning Greek was uh, in 1 John, where it says uh, you're not able to sin. And, you know, I thought that is, it, well, actually the translations don't say that, but the Greek does. And I was like, that is a strong statement. And, you know, I certainly am able to sin as a mm-hmm. Christian. So what does this mean to me? Yeah. And as I really dug into what's going on there with that, that infinitive, able to sin, I found that it really means has a habit of sinning. He's not able to go in a habit of sinning. And so you know, I thought, is that just me doing gymnastics or, you know, a lot of grammarians doing gymnastics? No, it's actually part of the language. It's part of their, they call it verbal aspect. And part of the language has these, these layers of whether it's habitual mm. or intentional. And that's a real aha moment when you really realize, well, I should read some of these passages with the word habit in mind, and it really changes them and it is helpful. So now I can focus on my life as habits, you know, habits of sin mm. versus actions of sin. Yeah. How accessible would you say this book is for average folks like me with no prior training in biblical languages? I think it's perfect because <laughs> I'm not just saying that because I'm your quintessential language impaired person. So I would go to, I I, I took Spanish a number of times, and there's a reason why I took it more than once. The professors would look at me and say, I can't work with this. And a lot of that was due to my unwillingness to think in different ways or learn different grammatical structures. And I didn't realize I was unwilling to do that. And so when I finally made it through a beginning language, I realized the the information is finite. It's not infinite. And even a knucklehead like myself can get through it. So this book <laughs> is basically a compilation of dec- my decades of struggles, and I distilled it into to answering 
questions and presenting material in a way that non-language whizzes can understand. I can give you an example of that. Yeah, please uh, do. Please do. Basically, there, you know, there are three functions to language outside of your core sentence, subject, verb, object. And most people understand that language only does two things. It either tells you more information about one of the nouns, and that's attributive, things working like adjectives, or it tells you more about the verb or the actions, adverbial. And that's it. We have six different ways of doing that, six different outfits, parts of speech, we call those, but they all just do those two things. And so that's how and I present that in the book, and it really kind of declouds the... Uh, a lot of the confusion when it comes to language. What, you know, what is this part of speech doing? It's, it's really just doing the same thing that the previous chapter did. So if you had 30 seconds to encourage listeners to say, go ahead, stick your toes in the water, check out an introduction to biblical Greek, what's your encouragement? Well, I would in- encourage someone to explore this foreign land. Uh, you can do it just with the first chapters of learning the alphabet, learning to the first chapter teaches you how to pronounce and read a chapter in Greek. So just getting the flavor of it is, is beneficial. And then it just steps into how the letters interact with each other. And even just learning nouns or I find it addictive. Once you start working <laughs> on a, a one piece of it, it kind of raises some curiosity. And, you know, there's an answer key in there. It's a very full grammar that doesn't expect you to have learned any other language I think it's really approachable. I think so, too. And I thank you for your time, Dr. John Schwant, who's written an introduction to Biblical Greek. Thanks for joining us on The Land and the Book. Thank you. All righty. Coming up next, your friend and mine, Charlie Dyer, back with a fresh set of questions. Hope yours is one of them here on The Land and the Book. Thanks for connecting with us today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. We're about to open up a a segment that, for many people, is their absolute favorite because we all have questions when we open the Word of God. I do. Uh, Every time I open it, I think I come up with a new question. We'll never get them all answered, but on this segment, we do address some. And if you ever have one that uh, you'd like us to address, well, listen for our email address. We'll give you in just a minute. We'll begin with Diana's. She says, uh, you read through the book of Exodus, and uh, you talk about the procedures for sacrifice, and she says, if priests are sprinkled with blood, anointed with oil, wouldn't that really mar their beautiful clothes? Wouldn't they be all stained with blood sprinkled on them? Uh, All the pictures I've seen of the priest's clothes look so lovely, never blood spattered. Uh, Help us understand what's going on here, Charlie. Yeah, you know, really, those aren't silly questions at all. It's that kind of curiosity that does drive us deeper into studying the Bible. Now, we may not find all the answers, but more often than not, it's asking these kind of questions that really do help us understand God's Word in a more detailed way. Now, having said that, uh, those are the kind of questions the Bible doesn't directly answer, but I think you're on target when you said the clothes and look so beautiful in pictures, but uh, they do in pictures. But in real life, the priest's garments would have been splattered with blood and other grime. And, you know, the initial anointing oil and uh, was somewhat symbolic. You know, maybe just a few drops of blood sprinkled on them. But when they offered sacrifices, there would have been lots of blood. And then offering the sacrifices on the altar and cleaning up afterward would have added smoke and grime. I assume those garments would have needed to be washed. 
Uh, you know, in the same way, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year. On, on that day, he sprinkled blood on the mercy seat. And, you know, that suggests to me that that blood had to remain on the Ark of the Covenant and would have accumulated over time. It uh, definitely would not have looked like pictures in the books. Now, images like that might seem jarring to us at first, but I think they're really far more realistic. They're a reminder that the approach to a holy God required sacrifice, and that was designed to point Israel to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus. You know, Isaiah said his appearance was marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. Even the blood-stained robes of the priest were a visual reminder of what our Savior had to suffer to pay the debt for our sin. Terry takes us to Matthew 12, chapter 40. The Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This seems to suggest that Christ went to hell after his death on the cross. However, he told the thief on his right that today you will be with me in paradise in Luke 23, 43. How should we understand these apparently conflicting statements? Yeah, and it's interesting because most of the time when we're answering this question, it's on the issue of three days and three nights. But in this case, it's where did Jesus go? Well, Jesus' physical body went into the grave. That's what I believe it means when it says he will be in the heart of the earth. He was literally buried. But while his physical body was in the earth, his soul and spirit went to paradise. That's why he could say to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. One other reason I don't believe Jesus went to hell following his death is that on the cross, he said, it is finished in John 19. Now, the Greek word used there, tetelestai, has the idea of a transaction being completed or carried out. The eternal payment for our sin was completed at that point, so there was no reason for Jesus to suffer any further for our sin in hell. In fact, in Luke 23, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit just before he died. Now, that fits with the idea that Jesus' soul and spirit went into paradise to the presence of God himself at the moment of his physical death, even as his physical body was placed in the ground. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, is taking a look at fresh questions that have come in via email. Our address to send your question to us is thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Staying in the book of Matthew, we're heading now to the 13th chapter, the parable of the wheat and tares. The passage talks about a harvest of taking out the tares first and then burning them and then gathering the wheat in the barn. When Jesus is explaining this to his disciples, he says that the harvest is at the end of the age. That's verse 39. And in verse 41, he says, he will send angels to gather out of his kingdom all that offend, cast them in the fire. And in verse 43, the righteous will shine forth in the kingdom of their father. Laurie says, this can't be the rapture because the righteous are the ones taken. The question is, is the harvest at the end of the 1,000-year reign? Yeah, and I think the key to this can be found not only in Matthew 13, but I first have to go to Matthew 24. The disciples in Matthew 24 asked Jesus two questions, though it looks like three in our English Bibles. But they asked, tell us when will these things happen? And then they asked, what will be the sign of your coming, even the end of the age? Jesus' return to earth marks the end of the age of Gentile domination and the beginning of the millennial kingdom age. And I believe Matthew uses the phrase, end of the age, consistently in this sense throughout the book. Now, having said that, back to Matthew 13. Matthew 13, the end of the age then would be the time of Christ's physical return to earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. In verses 30 and 31 of chapter 24, Jesus said at his return, he would send forth his angels to gather his elect. Now, 
that even there sounds like it's the opposite of Matthew 13, but I believe Jesus explains the sequence a little bit later in chapter 24, where the wicked are then taken away in judgment. So I think what is happening is uh, Jesus, when he comes to earth, he first gathers all the nations before him, both Jewish and Gentile. The unrighteous are judged and sent away in judgment, while the righteous are then invited into the kingdom. Uh, The point is that before the righteous enter the kingdom, The wicked, the tares, so to speak, are taken away in judgment. Terry takes us to the uh, book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 21, in God's creation story. He speaks of taking the rib from Adam and from that fashioning Eve. So how is it that man does not have one less rib than a woman? And I'll answer this two ways. Uh, The first is the Hebrew word translated rib is elsewhere translated as the ridge of a hill, the, the side chambers of a temple, the planks or boards on the temple walls, uh, the side of the ark, and even the leaves of a door. Hmm. Uh, That is, it has generally the idea of side. So while God could have taken an actual rib from Adam, a better translation is that God took a piece from the side of Adam to fashion Eve. So it could have included muscle, bone, skin, and blood. Uh, Second, the text doesn't say that taking this part of Adam to create Eve produced a permanent change in Adam's descendants. Now, I I had a friend growing up who had to have his appendix taken out as a teenager. But later when he got married and had children, his children were born with their appendixes intact. And my point is that whatever God took from Adam in terms of a body part to fashion Eve, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that it went missing from Adam's later descendants. Carol points out wisdom is a person or personified as one in Proverbs. She says, basically, I'd like to know why good Bible teachers seem to dismiss the thought of wisdom being the Holy Spirit. Since feminine pronouns are used when referring to the wisdom, it cannot be Jesus or God the Father, but why not the Holy Spirit? Why is wisdom referred to as a she and not a he? And I've got to answer this a couple ways as well. Uh, First, when the Holy Spirit's referred to elsewhere in the Bible, masculine, not feminine pronouns are used. So describing the Holy Spirit in this fashion using female pronouns would seem to be out of place with those other references. Uh, But second, in Proverbs itself, Solomon is personifying wisdom as a woman because the book's designed to be advice and instruction from a wise father to a naive son to help the son learn how to become wise. Now, in doing so, Solomon describes two, quote, women in the first several chapters— Wisdom is personified as the ideal woman that the son ought to pursue, while the adulteress is pictured as the wanton woman the son should avoid. So, for example, in in chapter 5, the first two verses, the son's told to pay attention to wisdom, and then in the next uh, five verses, he's told to avoid the adulteress. Uh, Solomon later pictures the adulteress inviting men to her house in chapter 7, while wisdom builds her house in chapter 9 and invites the simple to learn how to become wise. So in that sense, the imagery of a woman being used as a figure of speech uh, is what Solomon's intending to show the attractiveness of wisdom. Now, a third thing. Uh, In chapter 8, wisdom says the Lord brought her forth as the first of his works. Now, if wisdom is the Holy Spirit, that would suggest the Holy Spirit wasn't actually part of the eternal Godhead but was somehow created by God. And that doesn't match the rest of the Bible and what it teaches us about the Holy Spirit. So it's for all those reasons, I think it's just simply best to understand Solomon picturing wisdom as a beautiful woman to show that pursuing wisdom ought to be the goal for anyone who wants to become wise. Ricardo's daughter was confused reading 1 John 5, 16 and 17. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, You should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. 
There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Well, she was confused by this because she thought all sin leads to death. Is John talking about specific sins in this message, Charlie? This is a debatable passage, but let me give what I think is the best interpretation. John begins his book by acknowledging we all sin in 1 John 1.10. In chapter 5, he notes some sins can result in physical death. Uh, the sin unto death here is a sin that can lead God to take an individual's life. I think what he's saying is when we see someone sinning, we're to pray for them, but he acknowledges that uh, God won't always answer that prayer because the actions of some individuals are such that God will judge them with physical death. And that's a look at today's batch of questions here on The Land and the Book, where Charlie Dyer's devotional is next. You don't want to miss it. Stick around. Conflict, it is simply part of the human experience. Wasn't it Job who said, man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward? This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Rest assured, we're not going to leave it in that kind of a downer mode, no. Charlie's devotional coming up talks about comfort amidst conflict. First, though, we'll pause and enjoy this Holy Land experience, a testimony from someone who's traveled to the Holy Land and now shares this with you and me. Hi, I'm Vilas, and I cherish this Holy Land experience because it confirms that everything in Scripture makes sense, down to the smallest detail. Dr. Dyer took us up to the top of Mount Carmel, where Elijah and our Lord took care of the priests of Baal. And then Scripture reports that Elijah scampered down the mountain and beat Ahab home. How can that happen? Seeing the terrain, I could very well understand. I could probably do it myself. Uh, we visited En Gedi, where uh, Saul and his thousands of troops chased after David for months and months. And you think he should be able to find David, but I saw the holes in the rocks and the cracks and the ruggedness of the terrain, and it all made sense. And then just yesterday, I believe, we visited Ayla Valley and stopped at this inconsequential and very inconvenient place. And Dr. Dyer read scripture and painted the picture of how the Philistine army came up from the sea and covered the hills on one side of the valley. And uh, Saul and the troops were protecting the road leading to Bethlehem and uh, Jerusalem. And how David walked into the brook and picked up his five smooth stones. And the brook still has an adequate number of smooth stones. Thank you very much for that Holy Land experience. Great testimony. Well, I don't know about you, but one of the things that I am most looking forward to about heaven is a complete 100% absence of conflict. Don't you get weary of conflicts, small conflicts, large conflicts? And that has everything to do with uh, today's devotional. But I'm curious uh, about the text. Charlie, where are we uh, headed biblically today? Well, biblically, we're heading to Psalm 102, but we're going to start by walking down from Mount Arbel. As a tour leader, I found that the first day on an Israel tour is usually the hardest, but for reasons you might never expect. The group is fresh, excited, ready to explore the land. The first stop is usually Caesarea, and that's where the group turns into a bunch of photo-snapping snails. Now, I don't blame them. It's a fantastic sight. It's probably the first time most have ever seen a 2,000-year-old theater or hippodrome or Roman aqueduct or ruins of a palace built by the Bible's own Herod the Great. The problem is that they want to spend hours at Caesarea, while I know the other sites we need to visit. And if we dawdle here... 
we could very well miss the last spot of the day, Mount Arbel, which is by far the most spectacular. Mount Arbel is part of Israel's national park system, which means it has a set closing time. Arrive too late, and the gate to the parking lot is closed and locked. But even if you arrive before closing, there's a limited window of time to make it to the summit. You want to get there as the sun is heading down, but while it's still high enough in the sky to be shining on the mountain. For about an hour, the cliff face takes on a golden hue, and the ever-lengthening shadows help each ridge and undulation stand out in crisp clarity. The mountains in the distance, highlighted by the sun, are distinct from the darkening blue of the sky. And a thousand feet below, the green vegetation and blue water of Galilee take on a warm bronze glow. Sadly, a delay of 30 minutes can make all the difference in the world. As the sun drops closer to the horizon in the west, the distant mountains block its rays. The golden cliffs turn into a muddy shade of gray as the shadows reach out and cover the entire landscape. The panorama is still there, but its beauty has faded like an old photograph. First-time tourists arriving late don't know what they've missed, but I do, and that's why I keep them moving all day. Walking off Mount Arbel as the sun dips toward the horizon reminds me of the words of Psalm 102, my days are like a lengthened shadow. In fact, let's pause here to look briefly at that psalm. The deepening shadows in the canyon below us help serve as the backdrop for our study. We don't know who wrote this psalm, nor when it was written, but the introduction tells us much about how the writer was feeling as he penned it. A prayer of the afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. The psalm is a cry for help from someone experiencing deep pain and anguish. The psalmist begins his prayer by pleading with God. There's no fancy these and thous, no praying for the missionaries around the world or Aunt Susie's lost cat or next week's test. There's no time to waste. I need your help, Lord, now. So what's the problem? At first, we don't know. But whatever it is, the stress is actually causing physical illness. In verses 3 to 11, the writer describes his symptoms to the heavenly physician. He begins and ends by picturing his life withering away. My days have been consumed in smoke. My days are like a lengthened shadow, like a puff of smoke rising into the sky or a shadow reaching out to consume the few remaining patches of sunshine. The writer feels his life is evaporating before his eyes. He forgets to eat. He's losing so much weight that he's reduced to, as he says, skin and bones. And these physical changes have been accompanied by intense feelings of loneliness. He cries out that he feels like an owl in the desert or like a lonely bird on a housetop. He's alone, anxious, depressed. What could cause such intense pain and heartache? He gives a hint of the root cause in verses 13 to 21. He longs for the day when God will again have compassion on Zion, rebuild the city, and reappear there in his glory, a time when nations and kings will once again fear the name of the Lord and revere him. It seems likely this psalm was written during the Babylonian exile, a time when the people were slaves in captivity and the city of Jerusalem and Temple of Solomon sat in ruins. The writer might have been one of the early exiles who just received word of the city's destruction or 
Perhaps he was just mocked by his Babylonian tormentors who were merciless in reminding the Jewish exiles of their loss. We don't know why this writer is so discouraged, but we've all experienced similar times in our own lives. So what's the solution to such crushing sadness? Well, thankfully, the psalmist provides the answer. Three different times in this psalm, the writer turns from looking at his own problems to gaze into the face of God. After announcing in verse 11 how his days seemed to be as fleeting as the evening shadow, the writer immediately added, but you, O Lord, abide forever. Our lives here on earth are temporal, but God is eternal. Later, he focused on God's power in creating the heavens and the earth. Yet he quickly adds in verses 26 and 27, even they will perish, but you endure. Everything around us that seems so permanent including our problems, won't last forever. Like clothing, you'll change them and they'll be changed. But you remain the same, he adds. So how did the psalmist find comfort in the midst of conflict? He did so by focusing on two realities. First, problems are temporary, but God abides forever. And second, circumstances can change but God's character will always remain the same. The sun's about to slip below the horizon and the temperature is starting to drop, so it's time to head back toward the bus. But as we do, think about the lessons of Psalm 102. I don't know what you're facing in life, but God does. And more to that, He cares deeply for you. He wants you to bring your burdens to Him, to cry out for His care and help and comfort and compassion. And as you do, follow in the footsteps of this psalmist and turn your attention from yourself to God. He's the God of sovereign power who sits enthroned forever. He's the God of infinite love who promises to have compassion and be gracious. And most of all, he's the God who answers prayer, who will look down from his holy height to hear the groaning of the prisoner and set free those who are doomed to death. The psalmist is reminding us that God hears, he cares, and he has the power to change your circumstances. But what a great word of encouragement. Thanks, Charlie. Reminds me of one of my favorite songs by C.C. Winans. He is concerned about you. Well, we're concerned about this broadcast making an impact in your life. And if it has, have you shared that with us? Have you emailed us? It's easy to do that. Our email address is thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Go ahead and share with us how the program has affected you, touched your life, maybe broadened a perspective for you in a Sunday school class. The stories are endless, and so we'd love to hear yours. Again, the email address, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Thanks for joining us today for The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. See you back next week.